Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Balaguer Guitars. Founded in 2014, Balaguer Guitars strives to bring modern aesthetics and options to vintage-inspired designs. Go to balaguerguitars.com for more info. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by Fishman, inspired performance technology. Fishman is dedicated to helping musicians of all styles achieve the truest sound possible wherever and whenever they plug in. Go to fishman.com for more info. And now your host, Al Levy. Hey, welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. I am Al Levy, and this is a very special episode. I've got Mr. Jordan Valeria with me from Hardcore Tracking. I was also a producer in his own right. Credits like Silverstein and Neck Deep and Intervals and Counterparts and more plural bands. <laughs> I, think, I feel like we've all recorded lots of the plurals. Oh, yeah, for sure. And uh, the plurals give you credibility. Definitely. It's in instant credibility. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, and that's why we're talking, because of Double the Double the race, yeah. <laughs> Triple, dude. <laughs> so, Jordan's here, because if you're hearing this, we're going to go back in time. That means that hardcore tracking has been released. And it is kind of like... For those of you who are familiar with my work, if you're familiar with my Creative Live boot camp with Monuments and you liked that, it's uh, kind of along the same lines. It walks you through every step of the process in tracking a band, all the way from, obviously, Jordan's philosophy on tracking, which is a good philosophy, to uh, choosing drums and everything you would want to know with drums is replacing heads and on and on and on, you know, all through guitars, vocals. And uh, the reason that we're kind of getting behind this is because there's not too many, there's not too many educational products out there that will teach you how to track heavier music properly. There's a lot of stuff out there for general recording. But at least when I did my boot camp over a year ago, the idea was to finally be like, this is how you track heavy music, like for real. And uh, I haven't really seen anything since. Yeah, This is the first thing I've seen since. And so I kind of wanted to just get on record and be like, it's good, people. <laughs> Check it out. <laughs> yeah, appreciate that, man. So you put a lot of work into this. Yeah, I mean, as you know, having done something similar like I think the reason why there's not much out there is because it's hard to do. You know, it's taken, I think I started planning this at least kind of last summer, you know, started basically doing a whole written outline and all the, you know, surveying, you know, people who follow my stuff and say, you know, asking, what do you want to learn? What do I need to cover? All that stuff started over six months ago. And then, you know, booking the studio, finding the band, going and actually filming it. And then all the editing and everything after the fact and just getting everything prepared and ready to share with people has also been months and months. So yeah, it's not, it's not easy to do. Uh, and I think that's why there's not a lot out there. So yeah, uh, yeah. Just like you said, I thought it was a need. I've been teaching a lot of mixing stuff for a while, which is great, but I think anyone who kind of gets beyond the beginner stage a little bit starts to realize pretty quickly that you know the the tracks you are capturing at the source really are the main factor that determines the quality of the the final mix and the final product. So I definitely wanted to uh, to get something out there on that. I totally agree, and it's it's interesting. Something I've started to think lately, and I mentioned it in uh, another podcast, is that you know when you have like a favorite mixer of yours mm -hmm. who uh, just delivers the goods almost every time. And then, and then it's like they have this mix that's just not up to par, and uh, it's like what happened, right? Or like two mixes, and it's like, was he drunk that day? Like what? What's going on? And then you hear through back channels that the production was a complete disaster, right? And that he did everything he could to salvage it, and that the fact that it sounds as good as it sounds is a miracle. Yeah. Yeah, totally. That's, that's, you know, that's happened to me before for sure. And, um, I think, you know, like what you just said about, you know, your favorite mixers who just constantly 
pump out great sounding stuff and everything is is always great aside from the situations you mentioned kind of my my goal with this course is to get people to that same level but from a tracking standpoint so that no matter who comes through your door no matter what you're working with you get the same level of quality at the tracking stage no matter what and that just automatically sets you up or whoever's mixing it up for a killer mix right yeah so let's talk about that in in actual practice because I know for a fact that the people listening to this are going to experience a wide variety of clients <laughs> in terms of quality. Yeah. Everything from guys who are going to do a record that, you know, some unnamed record that we all are looking forward to versus some guys who are recording things for the very first time ever. Right. So it's a tall order to, you know, try to get everything to the same place where it's mixable. Mm -hmm. So I want to hear some of your thoughts on some of the things that you feel every tracking engineer or almost every tracking engineer should be doing, at least from the get-go, going in. Yeah. So there's kind of three different um, things that I consider like the core pieces of this, this course and what every tracking engineer really needs to kind of master in a way. The first thing is kind of like the the obvious technical stuff. So signal flow, how to, you know, basically how to do signal chain and routing and all that stuff. And then it's the mics, like choosing the right mics, knowing how to use them, knowing where to put them, all of that stuff. And then, you know, that's kind of like the technical recording side. But in some ways, I almost see that as like one of the, I don't know if I should say least important, but it's not any more important than the other two things, which are uh, the instruments and uh, themselves. So knowing how to set the instruments up and then also knowing how to get the right performances or great performances. So I think all of those three things work together and people focus way too much, I think, on the actual physical gear and the mics and all that. And you need to know where to put, you know, where to put the mics, right, to get a good sound. But it's only one piece of the puzzle and it's super logical you know if you don't have a good sounding guitar then it doesn't matter where you put the mic if your snare drum sucks it doesn't matter how well you mic it right or what preamp you use or whether or not you compress on the way in like that stuff is secondary to the actual instrument itself and then even backing up before that it's secondary to the performance yeah it's interesting me and uh this this guy named matt brown who's an excellent drum tech engineer who we actually have a drum course coming up with uh, later on in the year. He and I did these shootouts at some point, one of various experiments, just to see what, how much a preamp really mattered, how much a mic really mattered. Right. So we would do like the same, we would try to swap out like every single possible factors the drum head or the hoop yeah. or the preamp the stick the player right and at the end of the day we discovered that the gear while while it does matter it mm -hmm. does matter it would be dishonest to say it didn't matter it doesn't matter that much agreed not compared to the other parts of it yeah like you you put a bad player up and it's almost all for shit yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree, man. There's like, when you're talking about working with inexperienced bands uh, and kind of amateur musicians, especially, it's like, I can't tell you how many times I've been in the studio with a band and I tuned a drum kit and I'm kind of messing around. And I'm not like a great drummer by any means, but, you know, I'm playing it. I feel like, all right, this, this kit sounds good. Let's, let's do it. Let's record. And then I hand the sticks to the drummer and he starts playing and it sounds completely different. And all of a sudden it's like not up to par at all. <laughs> and it's, it just goes to show you that's just like the way someone hits a drum, the way someone strums their guitar or picks a note is, it has just has such, it has a way bigger influence over the sound than the mic and preamp and converters and that stuff like you, like you were just saying. And that's kind of like at the very start of this course, um, one of the things I talk about is just your mindset when it comes to the whole signal flow of getting a track down. Um, and there's a little signal flow chart I put out a couple of weeks ago, actually, um, but it's in this course too, and there's um, some videos talking about it, but it just is a graphic illustration of, you know, the I call it the signal flow hierarchy, where the most important thing in your chain is the player first, number two is the instrument, number three is the mic, 
Number four is the preamp and any outboard you have. And number five is the converter. So I think of that as like the stuff at the start of that is what has the biggest influence on the sound. And the things at the end, like the preamp and the converters, they have the least influence over the sound. And like you said, it does matter. It does have influence. But if you're having trouble getting a good drum sound, changing the preamp isn't going to do anything to, to fix that. You've got to go further back, you know, and at least address the player and the instrument first uh, and then the mic before you get into like preamp and converters and all that stuff. And I think people often, it's easy to focus on the gear and kind of get that backwards. Well, it's almost like a procrastination method in a weird way. Yeah. It's like, uh, because it makes you, f- if you focus on the gear and do all this gear research and gear this, gear that, it's almost like you can trick yourself into thinking you're being productive. Mm-hmm. In reality, you're not actually addressing the problem, yep. which is what's creating the sound in the first place. Yeah, that's I totally agree. So uh, I'm going to take a quick moment here to say that uh, if you at any point decide that you want to pick up hardcore tracking, how many di- how many days do they have? Today is May 1st. Today's May 1st, so it's closing May 5th at midnight, so till Friday at midnight. All right, so go to hardcoretracking.com slash URM, and if you actually type in that uh, slash URM along with it, you're going to get some, uh, some cool stuff from us. We're going to give you our guide to reamping with uh, Ryan Fluff Bruce, which is a 50-minute video on how to reamp and i actually learned something from it i was uh i was always wondering why the signal was messed up on reamps why we were always losing at least a db or two and he solves that so i actually learned something and then uh his guide to uh recording and mixing with amp sims which is a two-hour class then uh Matt Brown and I put together our own little drum cheat sheet. It's a little different than Jordan's, just a different perspective, not right or wrong, but just a a different look at uh, setting up drums. And then finally, uh, yeah, if you get it through the slash URM link, you get a free copy of my Drumforge ELE expansion pack, which is a $100 set of badass samples designed for uh, metal, any style of metal. And if you want to hear what they sound like, just go to drumforge.com slash ELE. But uh, it comes with it. So now back to your regularly scheduled programming. So uh, let's just say that people do start to get the mindset right of worrying about the source. Does that, uh, what happens when, okay, so now they're aware that this is very important. But suddenly, the reality of the world that they live in dawns on them, and they realize that the bands they're working with suck. (laughs) (laughs) What happens then? What happens then? (laughs) Well, then it comes down to... uh, Okay, that's why, like I was saying before, I believe it's really important for an engineer, if you're serious about this, you want to do this in the long run, um, being a master of your mics and your audio gear is important, but like you need all these other pieces so that when that happens, exactly what you're saying, when the band sucks and they can't play. And, you know, let's be honest, like you said, it's the reality of the world you're living in. I mean, I, even I'll be honest, even records that I've done for labels, um, there's guys in the band who can't really play. So, so. Sometimes those are worse. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So there's no guarantee. Like I think sometimes people uh, message me and they're like, oh, it's, it must be so great working with um, such and such bands or at this level, you don't have to deal with like the crap anymore. And I often say like, you know what? I'd say overall, yes, for the most part, once bands get to a certain level, you know, they can't really get to that level if they suck for a long time. <laughs> Um, and usually bands that even if they start out sucking, if they have success, they tend to progress like we all do. But but it's no, by no means uh, a guarantee that you all of a sudden get to work with amazing musicians all the time. And there's always going to be stuff that comes through your door that uh, is less than ideal, shall we say. So anyway, that off that's a bit of a tangent, but um, that's why you need to be able to, you need to have the knowledge to uh, get the source right in terms of like, setting up instruments, replacing drum heads, because 
honestly, 90% of the people you work with, the drummers, they're not going to know how to tune their kit or they're not going to think they should put new drum heads on or, you know, all that stuff. And if you don't have any knowledge about that, then you're kind of screwed because you're basically just at the mercy of whatever's coming in. Whereas if you take the time to learn that, to learn how to tune drums, um, at least decently, you don't have to be an expert, but you've got to have the basics down and, uh, and then stuff like guitars, you know, intonating the guitars and uh, making sure all that is, is set right and making sure you're using the right strings. If you don't pay attention to that stuff and if you don't, you know, try to get a grasp on that, then yeah, you're just kind of at the mercy of whatever's coming in. So that's kind of on the instrument side. And then there's a lot of things you can do on the performance side also, um, to kind of overcome those, those issues. But, um, again, those are things you have to know about. And I think that the best way to, to learn that stuff is just to watch a record get made and see how someone solves these problems that come up, you know, and the guitar player can't play a riff without getting that nasty noise in between these two notes. Like, you know, what's the solution? What does the engineer do to get around that? And that's the kind of stuff I show in this course. You know, it's, it's supposed to be as if you're kind of a fly on the wall or an intern in the studio, just watching um, the tracking take place. And that's, I, I always think that that's the best way to learn is just to watch and observe. And then obviously as the process is going on, I'm also stopping and explaining everything I'm doing. So not only do you get to see and hear it unfold, um, but I'm also explaining everything that's inside my head as it's happening. And let me just point out that when I talk about the old mentorship system from the big studio world disappearing, I talk about that on the podcast a lot. Um, that's the kind of thing that is very hard to come across. And that is the kind of thing that was actually one of the most valuable things about having an internship it wasn't that you get to learn how to make coffee yeah. i mean we all love coffee yeah and certainly appreciate clean toilets i mean come on we're so we're all civilized people here but uh the most helpful thing it, for for an intern is getting to be mentored getting to watch how things are actually done and now it's uh very, very hard to come across that. So this kind of replaces that in a way. Yep, definitely. That's always been been my goal with, uh, you know, anyone who's been following my stuff or has any of my other courses, I always talk about that, of how the old days used to come up, mentoring under someone, watching what they do day in, day out. And you just soak that stuff in and it has a huge impact on you. And that's that's how I learned. I mean, I, I started out completely on my own and I barely progressed for like two years in recording and mixing. I'd say the, my quality barely changed within the first two years. And I was just trial and error, reading on the GearSluts forums, stuff like that. Very, very slow progress. And then I went and got an internship uh, at a, a bigger studio in Toronto. And it was hard work. I commuted like three hours a day, mostly seven days a week, long days, uh, but it was worth it. I did that for six months. And in those six months, I improved exponentially versus what I'd done before. And that, you know, I wasn't sitting in a classroom learning theory. I was just in a studio watching someone who knew way more than me make it happen. And, you know, there are some specific experiences where some big name producers and bands came through and I got to watch how those guys tracked a record and it completely changed everything for me. And a lot of, um, what I've put into my courses and especially this tracking course has come out of those experiences. And yeah, it's, it's super important. The good news is, I mean, the, the bad news is that those experiences or opportunities don't really exist that much anymore. Uh, maybe you don't live in a city where they even have a big studio. And if you do, it's super competitive to even get that spot. But that's the beauty of the internet, right? Is that through, you know, the stuff that you guys are doing and other guys and, and myself, you do have access to that information in a virtual way and you don't have to move to a different place or work for free for a year or any of that stuff in order to get it. So it's, uh, I think it, it's an awesome uh, opportunity for any up and coming engineers today. Absolutely. And that's also one of our main goals is to replace that. I think that we're uh, spirit brothers in that goal. Yeah. So let's talk about Maybe maybe share like a a tip or something like some, something from inside the course like just something that happens when a when you do have to coax say a performance out of a drummer like it's just not happening 
Right. Like, j- just think of something like something cool. Okay. Um, let me think. Not to put you on the spot there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. No pressure or anything. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's cool. I think. Um, so for drums, let me give two tips. Let's give the scenario of like uh, a decent, a decent drummer or a really good drummer, uh, and you're trying to get the best performance. I think uh, obviously when you're tracking drums one of the main things you're listening for is the timing right you're making sure they're on the click they're not rushing or speeding up or any of that but i think uh sometimes what people kind of let get away from them in that whole process is the dynamics and the the feel of how they're hitting the drums and stuff and especially after a long day of drum tracking towards the end i find one of the my biggest roles as an engineer and producer tracking drums is as the day goes on i'm constantly telling them you know hey, the timing was great, but you were hitting the snare way too quiet there. Or that was a great take, but that tom fill, you know, the floor tom was was just, you didn't hit it hard, so we got to do it again. And it's just that attention to detail is super important. And it's up to you as the engineer or engineer slash producer. Uh, it's not the band's responsibility to make sure that the takes are great. I think that it's your responsibility. So you've got to pay attention to that stuff. And it's not just about the timing with drums. It's about you know, how they're hitting the snare and the kick and, you know, making sure it's, they're hitting as hard as they can uh, every single time and making sure the cymbal dynamics are consistent and just making sure that you don't get to the the point where you're mixing afterwards and then you're trying to get, you know, let's say a huge breakdown or a huge course to come in heavy and you realize that the drummer was tired and didn't hit the crashes very hard at that part. And it's just like, what are you going to do about that? You know, aside from, going down a whole path of replacing everything. Um, that's the stuff you really got to be paying attention to. And then, you know, if it comes to, or if you're in the situation where the drummer can't really play what they wrote, there's, there's also some kind of drum hacks, um, and tricks that you can do, do that way. Um, let's say, you know, tracking without a kick or just being strategic about how you're miking up the kit, which is kind of, um, a bonus thing in this course is how to is basically called you know drum tracking hacks. It's a, a, another lesson I put together, going through some different scenarios. Um, but my main tip for that is is to start with the end in mind, and this goes for all instruments, but definitely drums. You know, spend some time listening to the drummer play and pay attention to where their strengths and weaknesses are, because that actually can have a big influence on how you approach recording the drums so let's say the drummer can't uh he's got lots of double kick but he's sloppy on his kick drum so how are you going to mic that how are you going to approach that i mean if it's really really bad you might just program the kick get rid of the kick drum use a practice pad but if you know you're going to have to do a lot of editing on the kick specifically later to me that always influences how i record because now i'm going to deaden the kick a lot i'm going to try to basically make the kick quieter or just have less of it bleeding into the mics. I'm going to mic cymbals closer. Um, I'm going to change how I'm using the room mics because I know that after I track when I'm doing all the editing, I want to make sure there's as the least amount of kick in all these other mics as possible. So that's just an example of kind of starting with the end in mind, you know, trying to take tailor your approach to, you know, the musician that you're working with and the material, the genre that you're working on, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So it's, uh, it's interesting. The role of the producer in music is a little different. I think about it as if you want to relate it to film, almost like if you combine the producer and the director mm. into two roles, because you know the director's there calling the shots, planning the shots, and uh, making them happen, generally. Yep. The producer kind of oversees the big picture. Mm-hmm. And in this case... As far as approaching the drums, what you're saying, and I agree because I approached it like this too, is you got to know the big picture of what you're working with so that you can set yourself up for success. Yeah, exactly. Basically. Yeah, yeah. You got to start with the end in mind. Yeah. If uh, if you don't do that, you might luck out. You know, sometimes those stories of we just set up and hit record and it was magic. Yeah. That happens yeah. uh, one out of twenty times, maybe. Yeah. Let's move on to talking about your guitar and bass tracking strategy. Yeah, sure. So you just want some kind of some tips on there as well, like we did for drums? Well, with guitar and bass tracking, I feel like this is one of those areas where there's a lot of quote-unquote voodoo involved because there's the basics that we always tell people which obviously if you're teaching a course on guitar and bass tracking you have to include 
this stuff. You have to include how to properly set up the guitar and mm-hmm. make sure that nothing is ringing out and yeah. all that stuff. And that's if you don't include that, it's not a good guitar course. Yeah, I agree. But um, and I know that you've included it, but you've gone a lot further than that. And I want to talk a little bit about some of the stuff that you covered that deals with once you have that stuff out of the way, mm-hmm. how do you then go about getting the better tone, that banging tone or those banging takes yeah. that you hear on the records you love? Yeah. Because I know that I've had experiences where I do all that stuff, all that prep, and it still kind of sounds sad. <laughs> However, it would have sounded way sadder if I didn't do that stuff. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean... But I, I want the sadness to go away. Yeah. <laughs> so my approach to guitars uh, for a long time has been less is more. And that goes for from tone to, to layers and all that. So, um, you know, when it comes to tone, I'm, I'm a really simple guy. And this is what I show in this course. Simple guy when it comes to recording, I should say. <laughs> I don't, you know, I... I don't like this stuff that I see online and the other people doing about putting four mics on a guitar cab and blending them all and setting up multiple heads and cabs and micing them all up and blending all those tones. Uh, to me, it's just like, it's what a headache. And to be honest, even when I'm just mixing a record and someone sends it to me and there's three mics on the cab, I'll just pick whatever one sounds best and I delete the rest. <laughs> so it's like all that work for nothing. But so now I just, I rarely, rarely use more than one mic on a cab. So uh, in this course, I show, I do show how to, how to use two mics. So I have, you know, 57 and a ribbon mic and I show how to set up the phase and align it and, you know, what it sounds like those two blended. And there are cases where that's a good way to go. You got to know how to do that. Yeah. You should know how to do that if you're, if you're an engineer. So I, I do show that and then I show it and then I say, you know what, again, it's with the end in mind, I know what this I want this this project to sound like I'm not going to use the ribbon mic. I'm just going to use the 57 and get that right. So, because again, my goal is to to show. I didn't want to make a course that shows techniques of like here you've got to have you know two or three different mics in order to get a good guitar tone. Like that's not what I believe. I think you can have a good amp, put the put a 57 in the right spot. Spend a few minutes dialing it in, and you're good to go. Dude, if you need three mics, there's something wrong. Yeah, exactly. So. That's the, that's the point I'm trying to make. And um, so, yeah, less is more. You know, you don't need three mics. You don't need three amps. Uh, and then when it comes to the performance, it's, again, it's it's, it's all about the, the tightness of it. And and when it comes to layers, I'm on all of the records I've done that you hear, it's literally just a track on the left, a track on the right. That's the main rhythm guitars. And then any layers, you know, we add on top, up the middle, or wherever they need to be in the mix. But the rhythm guitars are just one left, one right. And I think that's surprising to people because they hear these big guitar tones and they think it's, you know, I used to think this way when I was just starting out that to get a huge wall of guitar sound, you had to stack, you know, four and six and eight layers of guitar and switch up the amp and all that stuff. And it's just not true. Um, you know, the bigness doesn't come from layer upon layer. The bigness comes from stuff being clear and tight and hitting at the same time. That's what makes it sound big. It's it's not about the layers at all. So, yeah, I really demonstrate that with guitars. How less is more in all those all those stages, and how it's really just about getting those tight performances that are really in tune, and um, you know, just covering kind of all the little tweaks and tricks that you can use to kind of help you in that process to save you time and frustration and overcome problems. But uh, in the end, yeah, it just comes down to great a good tone, simple good tone, and great. Uh, great performances you know i find that there is a little bit of truth to the four guitars thing however and there's a huge however monstrous however is that you have to spend so much time on it yeah that it's just not worth it and i mean an insane amount of time to where it's not that much better anyways. Right. And it's argue and you don't know in advance if it's gonna be better. Sometimes it's not. Yeah. And the level of tight that it's gotta be is ridiculous. Yeah. I think that's part of the problem is because you might set out with this grand idea of I'm gonna do four guitar layers, I'm gonna get it really, really tight, but then you realize that it's taking you two days to finish one song and then 
you know, it's really hard not to start letting things slide a little bit from from there. Exactly, and that's the that's the killer with four guitars is you can't let yeah. anything slide. Yeah. On my own band's record that we did with uh, Jason Sukoff in like 2008, we quad tracked everything and uh, it was some pretty intense stuff. It took us one month. Wow. To to do all the quads because we weren't letting anything slide. Yeah. We were being maniacs. And so to get it done, that's just what it took. It took a fucking month. And like, did it necessarily sound better than two really well-tracked? I mean, that same year, Black Dahlia Murder tracked at the same studio and sounded just as good as yeah, we did right. if not better yeah. so yeah I, I i'm with you on that L- less is more mm-hmm. the right kind of less another thing that i think is interesting is that the four guitar thing i feel like got big in an era mm-hmm. where music wasn't quite as technical yeah i think that's true yeah especially in metal and so maybe our ears were okay with guitars chorusing a little or not being quite as uh not hearing quite as much articulation as you hear now yeah um because if you go back to a lot of records from like 2005 or whatever you know they have their sound and it's cool but they don't compete with the clarity Mm -hmm. and the punch of modern records yeah yeah i agree and i think some of that old kind of attitude just kind of carries forward and people don't that's like the down, the one downside of all the stuff available online is that someone might read something, so they might, you know, go and come across something that's like quad tracking. You must quad track for big guitars, and you know, they just accept that as the truth and not don't really go any further. And that that kind of stuff just gets carried forward and applied to the wrong situations, you know. But um, yeah, I think yeah, definitely back in that in those years you were talking about. That's what I was seeing all over the internet is just quad tracking quad tracking quad tracking and you know i used to do stuff like that and then i just you know uh, i discovered uh a better way dude and but it also these records people would spend like three months straight in the studio tracking right in those days and uh and i I don't mean like three months spread out over weekends i mean like 90 days yeah and yeah some bands might do that now but that's just not Real. That's just not reality for no. a lot of people. No. And again, it doesn't necessarily sound better. Right. Yeah. What's you know, it's uh, what's really delivering the the result you want, right? Is you know, there's probably a better way to spend that time in most cases. Well, I think what's really delivering the result you want is a simple, good tone tracked really, really well, one per side. Yeah. That's and if you want to eighty twenty this or ninety ten it, I think that's. Uh, that's your answer. So you should get really good with that. And I, I just want to reiterate what you were saying about the one mic thing. As an engineer, you should know how to use multiple mics just because it will come up. Yep. However, 80-20. If 80% of the time, or even 90-10, you're not getting the tone with one mic... There's a problem at the source yeah. that that pre that is earlier in the chain than the actual microphone. Yeah, yeah, agreed. You know, it was one of the things that was like a big light bulb for me when I kind of learned this whole one mic thing is when I was interning at that studio I was talking about, and uh, it's uh, it's kind of funny, but I was I was there when the Jonas Brothers were tracking a record, and the producer John Fields was there. He's an amazing producer and you know i know it's jonas brothers you think disney pop whatever but this is a rock record it's real drums you know real guitar real bass you know it's a rock it's a rock record pop rock and uh anyway he's he's setting up the guitar cab and um you know he had we didn't have a ribbon mic at the studio so i actually brought in my royal ribbon mic and you know he throws that within a 57 beside it on a cab and i'm like you know thinking i know what's going on Oh yeah, that's that's the classic go-to setup everyone uses: a fifty-seven and a Royer blended together. Uh, but then when he went to track guitars, I noticed that he, you know, he'd go to track a part, and he would basically listen to the guitar tone for like five seconds on the fifty-seven, and then like five seconds on the on the Royer, and then depending on the arrangement of the song and what the part was, he would just choose one. So 
it was like he would just put the fader all the way down on the Royer and then just record the 57. And then for another layer in the song, he would do the opposite. And he never, never, never blended the two together. He just chose which one was right for, for the part. That like blew my mind because up until then, I was kind of in my studio, you know, again, using multiple mics, thinking I needed to blend these two mics to get a great tone and watching him do that. And it just, it sounded like a platinum record right, right off the bat, you know? That's such a good story, just a good it's a good piece of knowledge or wisdom that applies across so many different recording instances. I can think of two right off the bat. Like there's uh, times where sometimes I'll set up multiple overheads, like a mm-hmm. like a close kind of a stereo pair, mm-hmm. um, and then also kind of close mic the effect symbols. And then also then maybe do like an XY, like several feet up. Right. And to or something. Just to kind of get like a kit picture version as well. And people are like, dude, phase problems. It's like well, we're not planning on using them at the same time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh it wanna get different options on the kit. And then also in this most recent now the mix, we uh we actually did uh, four country tracks, awesome. but uh, we included a metal track for uh, the metalheads. And I remember that when I originally mixed it, I laid like 10 tracks of samples just because I couldn't figure out what I wanted. And uh, I went with one sample. Right. <laughs> one sample, uh, and a top mic, bottom mic, side mic sample on the snare one sample on kick and then no samples on toms but i think i gave them like 10 tracks of snares four tracks of toms and like five different kicks to choose from and people were like freaking out they're like my daw is not even working with this like (laughs) what do i do how do you get it to work it's like dude pick one yeah (laughs) (laughs) pick one and go yeah Totally. And that's so often what I do. And when I get sent stuff like that as well, I just usually choose, you know, the best one. <laughs> and I, I also want to say, like, I know we're, we're kind of talking about all this stuff and kind of, I, I, my thing is like, there's not really any rules. Like, sure, there are things that are proven over time to work best, but like, you know, we're, I'm, you know, I'm talking a lot about how you don't need to multi-mic everything and, and to keep it simple. And I a hundred percent believe that. But like you said, will there be times when that is the appropriate or best approach, yes, for sure. There might be those rare times. But to me, it, it all comes down to why. Like, if you're putting two yes. sets of overheads or two mics on a cab or on anything or doing anything in the studio, you have to have a good reason why. And um, you just have to have uh, a reason for the way you're approaching things. And, you know, with the drum setup I show in this course, it's like, you know, overheads mic'd in a very specific way for a very specific reason. And, you know, room mics put in a, a certain spot for again for a very specific reason i have specific things i'm trying to capture for from both of those which influence where i'm putting them and which mics i'm using so i find that a lot of times not all the time but a lot of times especially um for more intermediate uh, or beginner engineers they just do stuff because they see someone else doing it but they don't actually know why they're doing it and if you're yep. ever doing anything without knowing why it's it's kind of a, a recipe for um probably not the best result or for stunted growth yeah like you're not going to get much better uh I, I mean all right if you're driving a car you don't necessarily need to know how it works right but uh if you're recording a band and you're just throwing mics up just because you saw a picture of it or you watched one of our courses mm-hmm. but you didn't f- hear the why you're not doing yourself a service you're not getting your right your money's worth yeah yeah for sure because when the uh you know when the scenario changes slightly um, if you don't have that why in the back of your head, you're not going to be able to adapt. And one of the most important things that, and I think this is true for any audio person. This is true for musicians, you know, mixers, whatever. Like the good ones or the great ones, the ones who are in the game for years, are the ones who can adapt to whatever scenario gets thrown your way. Because yes. There never is an ideal scenario. If and okay, let's just say that there is an ideal scenario. It's 
just a product of randomness that you randomly got an ideal scenario. It will never be a normal thing. Yeah. I love what you just said about adapting and something right off the top of this course I I talk about. Um, it's, it's like, I think today with, you know, being able, the advantage of being able to see everything on the internet and the software tools we have, it's, it's awesome. It's, I'm totally an in the box guy. I love all that. The only thing is like, I know there's people out there who are probably interested in this, this course and other courses like this. And, you know, let's say for whatever reason, whatever situation they're in, they can't, they don't have the ability, the gear or the space to record a real guitar amp. So, but they're getting really good at using amp sims and they're making good sounding records with amp sims. That's awesome. Like if you can make great sounding records with that stuff, like great, do it. But like you said, if you can't adapt and, and kind of know how to approach different situations, because what if a band hires you and they're a great band and it's going to be huge for your career. And they're like, yeah, we want to do this more organic. We want to have real drums. We want to have real amps in the studio. And if all you've ever done is spent your time just in one specific, really narrow thing, you're kind of sunk there. You can't, how can you do that project? You know, you're not going to be able to go into a studio and mic up a cab the way they want. Or let's say you get sick of metal and you want to do a country record or a pop rock record. You know, if you don't have kind of the basic engineering chops and skills under your belt, you're not going to be able to to move through those situations and, and have a, a lasting and diverse career, like you're saying. Yeah, it's going to be tough. And, uh, Let's talk about bass. Sure. I think that bass is like the hidden weapon or the secret weapon in a good, heavy production. Yeah, it's definitely something that has to be right. It kind of separates the men from the boys. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of those things where, you know, the cliche that the cliche term that you might not hear it, but the moment you press mute, You'll definitely notice it's gone if it's done well. That's absolutely true. But uh, I find that bass is one of the areas where up-and-comers mess up the most. What what are the kind of specific things that you see them mess up on? I find that the tightness, they don't understand. Let's just get down to arrangements. They don't understand exactly how to arrange a bass part Mm -hmm. to go with a guitar part. They don't understand how hard you have to hit the bass Mm -hmm. in order to get it to sound good. They tend to mess up the phase Mm -hmm. part of it when they start to add multiple, multiple things. Because, you know, a lot of people like to split the tone or they like to have multiple amps or amp plus DI. They don't understand the, uh, the phase relationships there and how you can make or break your low end. Uh, man, I could just go on and on, but yep. it seems like bass is the area where most people fall off the map with their uh, mixes and productions. Mm-hmm. It's like they can't get it to sit right. It's like either this clangy, distorted mess, or it sounds like a clean melon that eats the whole mix. <laughs> That's a great analogy. Yeah, it's uh, it can be hard for sure. I, I think... Uh the a huge thing is the arrangement like you hit on there you know uh, there's been so many times where I'm tracking a band and the the just the bass part that they're playing is maybe it's too complex or they're just trying to do exactly the same as the guitar and it's a complex riff whereas if they just ride on the root note the the whole mix just comes alive you know uh, that's that's a huge part of it is just having the right part the right arrangement and uh that goes a long way and then like you said the the player how they're hitting the strings that's a big thing for me with tracking bass is consistency like uh, like you said a lot of guys don't hit it hard enough they're not picking it hard enough to get that you know strong strong solid bass tone and um even in the course you'll see it where it's like where i'm saying that take was good but you played it too soft or that note was too soft and we do it again until until it's right and that's how you end up with a, a solid consistent bass tone do you ever find at least i found that when the bass sounds good. It's almost like the production comes to life. Like there's this, yeah. you want to like fucking get up and like jump through a wall or something. Yeah. Like it just happens. It, it's like, like the missing puzzle piece. Yeah, I think so. I mean, to me, it, it carries the song. Like uh, it's how you hear the chord progression and, and all of that and especially if you have anything melodic like the chord progression underneath it it's like it's anchored by the bass because when you've got heavy distorted guitars like and there's not a lot of low end there it's like you're not really hearing as much of like the fundamental notes and, and the progression of the chords and everything in the song and the bass needs to 
the bass needs to be that. And um, that's kind of always how I approach bass too. Like you said at the start was when you mute it and things all of a sudden fall apart. Like that's, to me, that's when I know I've done a good job on the bass, both at the tracking and mixing stage is when, you know, I have it at a level and and it's tone and everything that's sounding great. It's not jumping out of the mix. It's not like you're listening to it and being like, oh, this, there's the bass guitar. You know, it's just, it's all cohesive. But then if you, if you mute the bass, the entire mix falls apart. Like it just sounds horrible. Uh, that's kind of what I go for. And that just proves, you know, how important the bass is in a track. And what are your thoughts about overcoming tracking difficulties in it? Because I find that that's one of the, one of the instruments that tracking wise tends to present the most problems for a variety of reasons. Well, I would actually say for me, guitars uh, are the hardest to track. And one little tip I would give is uh, I always track the guitars first. And the reason is because I find it easier to basically fix an issue with tuning or, or yes. arrangement or whatever on a bass after the guitar is tracked. Because, I mean, let's picture if you're just tracking bass um, to drums, okay, sure, you, you tune the bass, and then, but you know, what if the intonation's slightly, slightly off as he's moving around the neck? You know, if you're just tracking, hearing bass and drums, like usually the bass sounds really good because it's all you've got. But then you start adding guitars on it and it's like, oh no, this bass note was a little bit sharp. Now we have to try and match like, you know, all the rhythm guitars and the lead guitars to this slightly sharp bass note. It's a, it's a nightmare. Whereas um, if you do it the other way around and do guitars first, you know, let's say, this one bass note is just sounding a little sharper flat. It's really easy to just tune that one note on a bass versus, you know, three or six notes on a guitar and, and, uh, and fix it there. So I find that, yeah, it can certainly cause, there can certainly be a bunch of uh, issues and problems when tracking bass, but I at least find it easier to solve those. And, and when it comes to t- tuning and all that stuff, it's usually a little bit less of a headache for me versus guitars. Well, I guess... What I mean is I often find myself replacing the bassists the most. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think that's like uh, the classic, um, you know, how many times is the bass player only in the band because he's friends with the guys and they, they need someone to play bass, right? <laughs> yeah, I, it's, it's funny. That band Chimera took it to the next level back in the first part of the 2000s. I don't know if you remember them or not, but they were, uh, they were a pretty big band and their bass player is a really cool guy, but he sucked. And they, now, they, I'm not talking shit. Like, they were very open about this on their DVDs and stuff. And, like, right. they, you know, they made a whole thing about him sucking. It was, the fans knew it and everything. And uh, it turns out that he's the one who had all the relationships uh. that would get them their tours. <laughs> he's the one who knew the guys in Slayer. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, yeah, that happens. I mean, I've been involved in records that are um, fairly fairly well known where um, the guitarist tracks the bass and the bass player could care less. <laughs> so <laughs> it happens. Yeah, absolutely. So, all right, moving on, let's... Uh, Let's talk about what you've got in store here for people vocal-wise, because there's a lot of different elements to tracking good vocals. Yeah. I mean, I know that you're covering singing, you're covering doubles, harmonies, yep. screams, but uh, let's, uh, let's get into it. Let's talk a little bit about what people can expect. Yeah. So vocals, uh, again, simple approach. Like, I'm not going to show you you know, what the vocal sounds like, uh, shooting out three different mics. Like that's to me, that's not what I'm trying to accomplish with this course. Like my goal and my promise with this course is that you can watch all the content, absorb it, practice it, and get basically after you go through it, be in the position where you could go into any studio and just do what I show you here and come out with a pro sounding record. So that's my approach with vocals too. So I'm not, uh, I'm not shooting out a bunch of mics. I do talk about the difference between dynamics and condensers, but for me, like I, I've gone through spending thousands and thousands of dollars on vintage mics and tube condensers and all that stuff. And, um, I ended up just getting rid of all of that. And I track all my vocals with an SM7B. It sounds good on everyone. (laughs) It always works in the mix and it overcomes a lot of problems that I can often get with uh, really nice, really sensitive condensers. So again, it's like the guitars. I'm showing you a really solid go-to approach that's just going to work for you every time. 
and uh, you know go through going through the whole vocal chain, and then also uh, I think the workflow and the strategy um, about how to tackle vocal tracking um, is kind of unique, and I have a I have a way of doing it that um, I don't know if I've really seen anywhere else. I just kind of came up with it over the years, but I call it you know just comping on the fly, and um, I think it saves a lot of time. Did you say comping on the fly? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I, I really demonstrate that in the course, and to me, it's it's all about getting great performances quickly, not burning out the vocalist, staying in that zone where their voice is warm and they're fired up and they're, and they're giving good performances, and not, you know, just just committing to stuff is a huge thing, and um, so. Uh, you know, I do comp together multiple takes, but it's not in the traditional way of like, you know, having five or 10 different tracks of vocal takes of the same line and then going through after and picking what the best one was. I, I don't do that at all. I have a really uh, different approach that's streamlined and just kind of gets, it allows us to track very quickly through the song. Dude, I think that that's gold because it's, I f man, it's so tough. Yeah in my opinion, getting through this particular hurdle of a production because every single vocalist out there has this problem, the stamina problem. Yeah. And the, uh, I mean, whether or not, you know, whether one can last four hours or one can last one, mm -hmm. or, you know, different vocalists need different recovery times, that doesn't change the fact that they all need the recovery time yep. and they all once you start doing a vocal session the hourglass has started uh you know the sand has started shifting to the other side absolutely and you only have a finite amount of time yep this is true of every record involving vocals that you will ever do and uh yeah you can tune vocals somewhat but you don't have the same kinds of tools for vocals that you do for, like, drums, right. in my opinion. Like, yes, you can tune vocals and all that, but it starts to sound like garbage if you use it too much. Like, There's a threshold. Really only, yeah, they don't really only sounds good if, uh, if the singer's close, right. in my opinion. Right. Yeah. So, like... We don't have these tools to completely transform a vocal. And, uh, I mean, unless you're dealing with a total nondescript generic vocalist, which does sometimes happen, it's not like you can just hand the vocals over to somebody else. Right. Now, I've done that with my engineer sometimes, where we are dealing with a generic shitty vocalist and who's got no stamina and so we'll have him track the main lines and then my engineer would do the doubles and the harmonies and <laughs> sure. no one would know better but that's not something you want to do what on a real record and that's not something you want to do like with a good vocalist and so you know if a guitar player's arms are tired you just come back the next day if a vocalist starts to get seriously sore you might need to be done for multiple days oh yeah so Learning how to get through the session quickly and effectively is like not just better for the brain workflow wise, but it's in some ways crucial. Yeah, I totally agree. And and even just getting the best performance too. like one way I think of it is I think the classic vocal tracking workflow that's taught is, you know, record three or five takes of the same line, keep them all move on and then go back later and, and comp together the best. And I've tried that before and it takes, for one thing, a really, really, really long time. But for the other thing, you don't necessarily get the best takes because you're not even thinking about quality and what you need. It's all about just volume of takes. Like it's this mindset that, okay, I'm not sure about this, this vocalist or this part or if they got it good enough, but I've got 10 takes. So I've got to have a good, a good yeah, combination in there, in there, which is like not true at all. Like for me, it's like, I'm going to keep doing it until it's right and sometimes with the when the vocalist is in the zone that could mean one take and honestly this is again this for all of this i feel like a common theme is just like committing and knowing what you want as as the engineer and producer because honestly i'm not afraid if i'm tracking the vocalist and we're working on a line and they do the first take of this line and it sounds awesome i'll be i'll just be like 
great, next line. Uh, you know, I'm not afraid to just to do that and commit with that. Whereas, you know, I think people get afraid and they second guess and like, well, that sounded great, but that was only the first one. So we better do five more, you know? <laughs> and, and It's not real unless we do five times the work. Exactly. And that's again, going back to burning out the vocalists, you know, taking them out of the flow. And, and again, I find the faster you move, the more you stay in the same zone. You know, if you don't have to do the same line 10 times, then why do it 10 times? You know, that's only going to have a more disjointed feel of the performance throughout the whole song versus just kind of going as quickly as you can through it. And when I say quickly as you can, I mean, you know, getting the right takes, the right performances, great ones, um, but then not overdoing it, not not wasting time. Yeah, quickly as you can, not rushing. Not rushing, yeah, but uh, yeah, just yeah. not wasting time, yeah. Yeah, man, um, I have learned this one the hard way by, I will take the blame sometimes for vocals never getting done on an album or like the vocalist totally burning himself out in some cases where I should have known better. Um, I should have been able to call, you know, call it if when I was younger. Um, right. Now I would know what to do, but like this would have saved me some serious, <laughs> some serious headaches yeah. to understand. I wish that I had a workflow like this. So uh, why don't you, we wrap this up and why don't you wrap it up by like telling us what this maybe give us like an idea for what the the big the big picture is what what's everyone going to get i'll ra i'll finish up after by adding what our bonuses are but like what's what's everyone going to get from you when they buy uh hardcore tracking today or in the next few days yeah so overall they're going to get uh a framework, a strategy, a mindset for approaching tracking and engineering that is just going to allow you to get good results, great results, like no matter what you're faced with. And it's going to give you the skills and the knowledge to be really versatile and be able to adapt to different situations. In terms of the actual content that you're going to get, uh, there's some mindset stuff like that, uh, stuff about how to set your vision and what your basically workflow uh, for tracking should be. And then the the really bulk of the course is called Tracking Exposé. The song I, the song we recorded is called Exposé uh, by a band called Kingdoms. And so this section of the course is all of the recording process captured on video as I'm explaining every step along the way. So that goes from everything from choosing the drums, um, you know, what the sizes of drums and cymbals to use, um, replacing heads, which heads to use, how to tune them, how to replace them, hearing the drums in the room, miking up the drums, signal chain for each part of the drums, checking the phase, you know, adjusting mics based on what you're hearing in the control room before you start tracking. Then there's the actual tracking, uh, getting performances, um, even drum editing is in there. Um, basically, everything from start to finish on making a great sounding professional record for drums, guitars, bass, you know, any question you're asking from based on the free videos you saw, it's it's covered in here. So all the way through from from just the vocals, we've also got uh, some written content, like I said. So I kind of wanted to make sure I provided some of the foundational knowledge when it comes to signal flow, different types of mics, what they are. You know, just in case uh, you're jumping into this and you're a little bit more on the on the beginner side, I want to make sure that you don't jump into these videos and feel overwhelmed by you know, well, what's the difference between a condenser and a dynamic or, you know, what's a ribbon mic or, you know, how, why is he putting it into this at mic level instead of line level? Like all that stuff is covered in this uh, guide I put together called real, real world recording. So it's basically a PDF ebook that you get uh, and it's very in depth and that covers lots of things. Um, like I said, from signal flow, all that stuff also has some helpful little sheets on kind of my suggestions of, uh, of go-to gear you should have in your studio as a project studio owner, um, some basics on how to treat your room, stuff like that, just kind of fleshing out uh, all the fine details. And then there's also some bonus lessons on how to track drums in a small room. So in the, in the main course content, we tracked it a pretty nice studio, but uh, I know that one of the big questions that's going to come up is, you know, what if I don't have access to a nice studio like this? What if I have a really small space to track drums in? So uh, I tackled that head on. I went and recorded drums at a different studio. It's very small. And I showed you uh, how to approach that. And a lot of it is very similar. I, I take the same approach in both rooms, but uh, 
this extra vid- bonus lesson proves that and also lets you see some different drum mics uh, and a different drummer um, and see how I approach that. There's some bonus videos on cleaning up the guitar and bass, uh, editing vocals and tuning, and then the drum tracking hacks, which, you know, basically how to overcome sketchy drummers if you can't, if they can't play what they wrote. So that's all included in the course. You're also getting a um, private Facebook group where anyone who's part of this course uh, can go in there and we kind of, it's a, it's an awesome group now. I've got um, close to, you know, a thousand members in there now. And a lot of them are great, like full-time engineers and people do mix critiques and it's, it's super helpful, very positive group, um, which I think is really a big bonus in moving forward in your engineering career. And then I'm also going to be doing some, uh, I call them office hours, basically live Q&A calls. So if you go through the course and any questions come up for you, we're going to have for a couple months after this sale, um, I'm going to be jumping on to group calls with everyone um, to basically answer answer questions and make sure that everyone, I, w- I want everyone to see huge success from, from going through this course. So I want to make sure I'm available. That's why we're closing it down on Friday at midnight, because I don't want to have to keep pushing this and keep selling it. I want people, you know, if you're in, then jump in, let's do it. I'm going to work with you, answer all your questions, make sure that you get the result that I'm promising out of this course. And, uh, and then, you know, months down the road later this year or something, I'll open up again, but, um, we're really committed to, uh, you know, making sure this course has a huge, huge impact on you. So I want to work closely with everyone, um, that way. So that's all the details. It it, it could be confusing and not as impactful if various people are starting it at various times. Yeah. So the whole group starts together. Yeah, exactly. I find it just leads to a really high quality group of people and everyone can kind of go through it at the same time and kind of share what they're learning. And um, that just doubles the value of it. And, you know, my, to sum it all up, I mean, I created this course because I want you to start getting tracks during the tracking stage to sound as good or better than the final mixes you're getting right now. And I say that because that's what happened to me when I, you know, was struggling with mixing recording. And when I started learning how to get it right at the source, how to get the right performances, learned how to set up the instruments, all that stuff, I started paying way more attention and putting way more effort into the tracking stage is seriously when everything started to change. I started, you know, hearing the rough mix out of my speakers in the studio with the band and it was sounding better than the final mixes I was doing before. And that's kind of when things started to, to click for me and I started getting better projects and having, having way more consistent, consistent work and consistent quality. And that really kind of is when my career started to, to take a turn for the better. So that's what I want to, what I want to provide for, uh, for anyone listening here. And I want to echo how important this is because those of you who are subscribed to Nail the Mix, a lot of you have told me or have mentioned that Nail the Mix is awesome, and thank you, but uh, that you're you're kind of bummed because you're, you're getting the best mixes of your life with the material we provide you, but then you go to the stuff that you tracked and the mixes aren't as good. And, yeah. you know, like if you're mixing Gojira or Meshuggah, of course it's going to sound better than your tracks because those are some of the best bands in the world tracked by some of the best people in the world. And it, it goes to show what a big difference the production makes. If if you're getting these skills to where you can take these really badass tracks we provide you and keep them sounding badass well you are coming along as a mixer but if then your own tracks sound like poopy maybe you have some work to do on the production side and that's exactly where this course comes to play so if you're noticing that problem i highly suggest this course if you bought the monuments boot camp i did and it's been over a year now i think it's time to add something something new to your arsenal there and you should go to hardcoremusic.com slash urm because we've got some of our own bonuses as well one of the things that jordan did not really cover is reamping and that's a you know it's a pretty common thing that's going to come up and it's not as simple as just plugging into a reamp box because there's there's problems that that you have to learn to account for, like uh, level differences. 
And so we got our buddy Ryan Bruce, otherwise known as Fluff, from his YouTube channel, uh, Beards and Gear, I believe. And uh, he made us an hour-long reamping guide, and you'll get that. And we also have a two-hour-long guide to getting the most out of amp sims, and it covers various amp sims, some of them that people consider to be rather lower end. We cover some of the expensive ones too, but kind of everything between and show that um, you can get good results even if you don't have, you know, a Kemper or an Axe Effects in the digital amp department. We have our own drum tracking cheat sheet that was written by Matt Brown. Matt Brown, for those of you who did see the Monuments Creative Live Bootcamp, he was the drum tech on that. We have a drum course coming out with him later this September. It's super, super comprehensive, and he's one of the most gifted uh, drum geniuses I've ever encountered. And when I say that, I mean not just playing. I mean engineering and tuning and just the drum He's a drum bible, basically, and so the his uh, his little cheat sheet is just a, a cool other perspective on approaching drum tracking. And then finally, uh, you get a copy of the Drumforge ELE that stands for A.L. Levy Expansion. It's my Drumforge expansion pack, and it's three drum sets tailor-made for mixing any genre of metal. They are mix-ready out the box and have lots of tweakability with the metal mix in mind. So lots of the things that you would automate in a metal mix are the types of options that I give you. So it's very, very effective. All in all, get this. You're going to get a lot better. HardcoreTracking.com slash URM and you have until May 5th at midnight. So, uh, Get on it. Right on. Jordan, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk to us about this. I'm super excited and wish you all the success in the world with this course. I hope you sell 200 million copies. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, man. I appreciate uh, you guys getting behind it and... Uh the opportunity to uh, try and help out your your followers here. So thanks. Thank you. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Balaguer Guitars. Founded in 2014, Balaguer Guitars strives to bring modern aesthetics and options to vintage-inspired designs. Go to balaguerguitars.com for more info. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by Fishman, inspired performance technology. Fishman is dedicated to helping musicians of all styles achieve the truest sound possible wherever and whenever they plug in. Go to Fishman.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit NailTheMix.com slash podcast and subscribe today.